Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Hello everybody, my name is Rob Dalrymple. I want to welcome you to my podcast in the book of Revelation. In this series of podcasts, we're going to look at the book of Revelation from chapters 1 through 22. What did John say? How would John's readers have understood what he said? And what does it mean for us today? After we survey the 22 chapters in the book of Revelation, we'll then record some more podcasts that will examine some of the more popular topics. What about the beast and the Antichrist and the rapture and some of the more popular topics? For those of you who are interested, I encourage you to get a copy of my book, Follow the Lamb. It's a guide on how to read, understand, and apply the book of Revelation. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast by downloading the Podbean app on your smartphone and following the Determined Truth podcast. For now, I hope you sit back and enjoy our study of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 6 takes us to the first in a series of seven. The seven seals are commonly thought of as a series of judgments upon the earth, but as we'll observe, no, no judgments actually occur in the series of seven seals. The first seal begins in chapter 6, verse 1. I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, As with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And another horse, a red one, went out. And to him who sat upon it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men might slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard, as it were, a loud voice in the center of the four living creatures, saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. He who sat on it had, had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. And authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth, to kill with sword, famine, and plague, and by wild uh, and pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. Uh, the series of seals must be understood in the, in, the, in the context of the fact that God is in total control of what's happening. The events, of course, occur only as Christ peels the seals. Christ himself appears to be in the throne room, and the commands to come uh, uh, originate from the throne room. Furthermore, God is in control in the Old Testament passages that form the background for the, the seven seals. The seals then depict actual no, no actual judgment. They form a logical and consistent series uh, that has often been acted out in history. If you think about it, first there's a conqueror that appears. That's followed by war, and then famine, and obviously death. War interrupts the agricultural cycle, and often leads to famine and to death. The first four seals are often referred to as the four horses of the apocalypse. The background for this, of course, is the book of Zechariah, chapter 6. The four horsemen seem to correspond to the four corners of the earth and the four winds that we'll note in chapter 7. But more importantly, the first six seals parallel the signs given in Luke 21, Matthew 24, and Mark 13. In those passages, Jesus is discussing with his disciples the fact that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. The disciples then ask Jesus, well, well, what's the sign? In terms, you know, when are these things going to be? The, when are these things going to happen? And what will be the signs? Jesus goes on to relate to the fact that there'll be war and famine and bloodshed and violence, and, and, and he seems to indicate that things will simply go on as normal. If you think about it, there's always been war and violence and bloodshed and famines and earthquakes. Those things aren't normal. Those things don't serve as signs in and of themselves. There's nothing extraordinary about war and earthquakes and famine uh, and pestilence and bloodshed. So 
Jesus seems to indicate that things will go on about as normal. Later on in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, he does indicate, hey, when this happens, you're going to know that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed. That, of course, discussion won't take us too far afield for today. The point being is that the seven seals, especially the first four, seem to indicate that life is going to go on as normal. The questions uh, that we're asking, of course, is what is going to happen in order for the throne of God to come down from heaven to the earth? How is God's will going to be unveiled and, and, and going to be fulfilled? Which specifically means, how are the nations going to, be, going to be converted? We know the ultimate answer is to the faithful, persevering, sacrificial, loving witness of God's people. Unto death, just as Jesus died and was resurrected, so also God's people will die and rise again. And that is going to be the means through which God's going to redeem the nations. But if God's people are going to be faithful, persevering, and sacrificial, loving witness, then the reality is things are also going to progress as normal. There's going to be war and bloodshed and famine and pestilence and death. Now, the first writer is described as coming on a white horse. Uh, and he has a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. Uh, there are two popular conceptions as to, or common perceptions as to who this is. Some say that it's Christ. And those who say that it's Christ are often divided amongst the popular version, which simply says this is Christ coming and the, the rapture of the church. The church is now raptured out of the way at this particular point in time. Um, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense in the context of, of what's happening. After all, the church appears to be very present, prevalent throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. After all, the means to which the nations are converted is the faithful, persevering, sacrificial witness of God's people. It seems odd that God would take his people out of the way at this point in time. Furthermore, I've discussed the, the idea of the rapture on, on, on another podcast if you want to get more information on that. But I'll simply note that there's simply no biblical context or biblical uh, justification for the idea of a rapture in terms of taking God's people out of the way before the end uh, of all history. Others, however, suggest that this is Christ in his first coming, that Christ has come. It seems to make some sense, of course, because after all, we note that the, the scroll was worthy of being opened only after the Lamb had been slain. So once the Lamb had been slain, then the scroll begins to be, become open. So the first seal would indicate the coming of Christ. Uh, now, this is still a, a little bit suspect, a little bit questionable. After all, if Christ is, uh, uh, would, the idea of that would be that Christ is currently conquering now. Uh, and that he continues to, to conquer throughout the age. Of course, conquering would be Christ's way of, of con, uh, subduing the nations, which is actually through the sacrificial witness of his people and not through violence and warfare. Others, however, say that this is an antichrist. Uh, this, of course, follows the uh, uh, parallels that we mentioned in Luke 21, Matthew 24, and Mark 13. Because the first thing that's going to come is false prophets and false Christ will appear even among, uh, among you. The phrase, he was given a divine passive, indicates God's permission to perform an action. So the fact that he was given a crown would indicate this is not Christ. Uh, Christ has a sword, whereas this person has a bow. Uh, this person seems to conquer in the usual way of violence and bloodshed, using the bow and conquering, and uh, etc. Whereas Christ conquers differently. He conquers through his words and through his testimony. Therefore, the first writer seems to represent a satanic force of, uh, attempting to defeat and oppress the believers through spiritual, spiritually through deception, persecution, or perhaps even both. The second writer is a writer on a, on a red horse. And this apparently it, uh, might indicate religious persecution of Christians. Now, many might suspect, wait a minute, I, I thought the, the seals were, were judgments upon the world and for God, God's wrath upon the wicked. No, the seven seals do not indicate God's wrath upon the wicked in any way, shape, or form. 
The first thing is the parallels between uh, this particular passage and Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. And it indicates that before the end, uh, end of, all, of all things, there'll be this life as normal bit. The life as normal bit will include false prophets and false Christs who will come to deceive even the elect. It includes the fact that there'll be war and violence and bloodshed, but it also includes the persecution of God's people. Now note that the rider on the, of this horse is on a red horse. Red uh, represents bloodshed. In the book of Revelation, it's the color of the dragon in Revelation 12. It's the color of the harlot who's drunk on the blood of the saints in Revelation chapter 17. Furthermore, the fact that this uh, rider represents the persecution of the righteous is indicated by the fact that the word for slain is always used of reference to Christ or the righteous in the book of Revelation. Chapter 5, uh, several instances, chapter 6, chapter 13, and chapter 18. Now there's one possible exception, and that is the beast in Revelation 13 verse 3 is slain. But there we might note that the beast is actually attempting to imitate Christ. So it follows then from the first horse that wherever the gospel is spread, persecution is going to follow. So if the gospel is being spread, then guess what's going to happen? There's going to be writers of false prophets and false Christs who are also going to be spread. And then there's going to be war. And that war appears to be the slaying of God's people. The, seal, the third seal, then, is the rider on a black horse, and this rider seems to represent economic hardship. Now, black, of course, is the color of the sun that's draped in sackcloth, and a, um, but this rider seems to represent economic oppression, in particular, economic oppression for the poor. Now, in the uh, biblical world, in the, world uh, the Roman world at the time of Jesus, in the time of the, gospel, uh, the, book, of John, the book of Revelation was written by John, uh, food was distributed in measured amounts during times of scarcity. A quart of wheat for a day's wages, as, as the voice that's heard, uh, would indicate enough food to feed maybe one person. And that indicates anywhere from 8 to 12 times the rate of inflation. Now this is not necessarily a famine. After all, it says that the oil and the wine were not damaged. The result, however, is that uh, the rate of inflation is so great that a poor family has no money to do anything other than maybe buy enough food to feed uh, barely even its own members. Now remember that at this time, most Christians were members of the poorer classes. So again, this might indicate economic hardship specifically uh, uh, felt by the Christians. Do not damage the oil and the wine, it says, might represent some of the comforts of, of life. This might suggest the fact that luxury items uh, were, were not affected. Now others have suggested know that the deep roots of the olive tree and the deep roots of the vine simply made it less susceptible to a famine. So if this is not a severe famine, then the oil and the wine might not actually be damaged. The fourth seal represents a rider on a pale horse. Now, the color in the Greek might actually mean green, but typically, when it's applied to persons, it indicates their sickliness and death in contrast to a normal color. Uh, death might refer to a person, and Hades might refer to a kingdom, or the fact that death might refer to the state of the dead, whereas Hades is the place of the dead. Nonetheless, this writer seems to represent war. The wild beasts roam the fields after war along with pestilence. One-fourth of life on the earth is killed. The fact that it includes Christians is supported by the fact that the fifth seal is going to be the souls of the righteous who are crying out for vengeance and for justice. Each of the four ways then in which death are, are is each of these are four ways in which death is executed. The name death here suggests perhaps a summarizing feature then. So the first question, the next question becomes this: Do the first four seals occur simultaneously, or do they occur one after the other? Well, in one sense, the, the fourth seal might actually summarize the first uh, three seals. But more importantly, the fact that the first four seals are paralleled by Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21 seems to indicate that Jesus is simply described, or that the book of Revelation here in this passage is describing life and events in life that go on as normal until the end will come. 
In particular, these events are, are events that God's people are going to suffer as a result of their faithful witnessing, uh, even under the end. So it might suggest that these are events that have been going on throughout all of history, and they're not specific events waiting until some final judgment day. The fifth seal is then described in Revelation chapter uh, 6, verse 9. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. They cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? There was given each one of them a white robe. They were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers who were to be killed, even as they had been, should be completed also. Now, as we mentioned in one of the earlier podcasts, the book of Revelation was meant to be read aloud. The hearers were going to hear and uh, recognize certain transitions. The first four seals come very rapidly. When he broke the first seal, he heard a voice and it said, Come. And when he broke the second seal, he heard a voice and it said, Come. And when he broke the third seal, he heard a voice and it said, Come. When he, when he broke the fourth seal, he heard a voice and it said, Come. But suddenly there's a, a radical transition with the fifth seal. When he broke the fifth seal, I saw. He doesn't hear a voice. The voice doesn't say, Come. There's not a, a rider on a horse. Instead, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who have been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. It's the souls of the righteous underneath the altar of God. And they're crying out for justice. How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? Note again, the seven seals don't represent judgment or God's wrath upon the world. If they do, what does this represent? There's nothing that happens here in this particular seal. The only thing that's described in the fifth seal is that God's people who have been slain, who have been killed, are crying out for God's justice or for God's vengeance. Note again the reference to them being slain which supports the idea that the second writer is actually slaying Christians, because it was says that he should make men slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. Now, the souls are under the altar crying out, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? This is a great cry out of the prophets in the book of Psalms. How long, O Lord, how long? It's also the great cry of the apocalyptic writings. The apocalyptic writings were written to a group of people that were undergoing suffering, undergoing persecution, whether present or, or soon to be. And they're crying out, Lord, how much longer? And they're always going to be reminded and told, just a little while longer. Now, the question is, is not when are you going to, uh, not whether you're going to uh, bring justice, but when are you going to be uh, bring justice? Note again that, that they're not crying out for vengeance uh, as, as if it's something they're going to carry out in their own hands. Instead, this is a plea for divine justice. In the Psalms, it's a cry out of the persecuted for help in obtaining such justice. The, the cry of those who's who place their hope of salvation in the righteousness of God, and they ask that God will soon vindicate his righteous people on the earth. Now, note, of course, that the word avenge, when you're going to avenge our blood, occurs only here and in chapter 19. And we'll draw the parallels between those two passages when we get to chapter 19. Now, these people are persecuted because they've borne witness, witness to the word of God and to the testimony which they have maintained. We noted in chapter 1 the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, and we'll continue to note the great parallels between the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Note that the word of God is the testimony of Jesus. They're crying out under the altar of God, and the altar may indicate God's sovereign protection over their souls. It's, of course, the place of God's, uh, the presence of God in Jewish tradition. The altar, often in Jewish tradition, represents the throne of God, and they're dressed in white. White, of course, is going to symbolize in chapter 19 the righteousness and the righteous deeds of, of the people of God. In chapter 7, uh, we see the, the, the great multitude uh, whose garments are, have been washed white in the blood of the Lamb. 
So their righteous acts, of course, indicates their, their righteousness and their faithfulness. But they're told that they should wait, that they should wait a little while longer until those who are to be killed for the kingdom of God have been killed. David Barr says, So in our story, the martyrs have to wait till their number would be complete. There comes a time in every oppression when the amount of coercion needed to maintain the system will itself destroy the system, as we ourselves have seen in the Soviet Union and South Africa. He adds, So the great whore who has become drunk with the blood of the saints in chapter 17, verse 6, Rome's very act of killing becomes her own death. Richard Bauckham adds that eschatological delay, or end times delay, is as much a feature of revelation as eschatological imminence. It is written in the structure of the book. From the moment the martyrs cry out how long, and are told that they should wait a little while longer. Chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. Their prayers now are going to be answered. We're going to see the answers to their prayers throughout the book of Revelation. In fact, in my book, Follow the Lamb, chapter 9, I describe the book of Revelation as a narrative, as a story, and a particular aspect of the story that I follow in chapter 9 is the prayers of the saints. How long, O Lord, is their prayers? And we're going to see that, that their prayer is going to be answered by God. The sixth seal is then broken in chapter 12. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became black, a sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a strong wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. The kings of the earth and the great men, and the commanders and the rich and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks and said, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The sixth judgment, or the sixth seal, describes a standard apocalyptic imagery for the end of the universe. It's a reversal of creation. Uh, it can, of course, be literal in, in, in its fullest sense, but nonetheless, it's simply this imagery that describes uh, God's destruction and judgment upon the end of the world, and that happens at the end of the world. The sixth seal brings us in all reality to the end. Uh, when and how long until you avenge our blood? And the answer is, well, a little while longer. After all the martyrs who have been killed or all those who have been killed for the sake of the gospel have been killed. And then the sixth seal seems to describe the end. After all, it says in verse 17, it's the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? The sixth seal contains uh, this description of the darkening of the sun and the moon becoming blood and stars falling from the sky. These are frequent images in the Old Testament. Isaiah 13, Ezekiel 32, Joel 2, Amos 8, Zephaniah 1. It's also described in Mark chapter 13, verses 24 and 25. Now, sackcloth is a symbol of mourning, uh, but stars are falling from the sky like figs or are often used as uh, judgment in the final end times judgment. Mountain and islands being removed from their places represents the uh, instability of creation. Being removed is a sign of God's divine judgment. Is this the final judgment then? It has to be. After all, it's the great day of their wrath has come. And the same class of people that are described in this particular passage, rich and the strong, commanders and great men and kings, are also the same people that are described in Revelation chapter 19 verses 17 through 19, that describes God's judgment at the second coming of Christ. Seven groups of people are listed here as crying out to the rocks and the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the face of him who sits upon the throne. Reminds of Adam and Eve hiding themselves from the presence of God. The irony, of course, is that they're wanting to hide from the wrath of the Lamb. <laughs> Lambs are not ferocious creatures or creatures of wrath. They're gentle. For the great day the wrath has come, and who can stand? We're going to have to remember that question, who can stand when we open up chapter 7. 
Let me conclude chapter 6 with this quote from David De Silva. He says, There's only one remedy, one path to relief and safety, to remain a faithful witness to God and to the Lamb, and to keep oneself unentangled from the sins of the Roman imperial system, no matter what temporary disadvantages or deprivations that entails. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.